Our text once again is Galatians 5, 16 through 24. But I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. This is the word of the Lord. Again, Galatians 5, if you haven't turned there yet, Galatians chapter 5. This will be the the second uh, sermon as we've been going through the fruit of the Spirit. And um, we've been having the, the same main idea through it all is that we are to be walking in the Spirit. Walking in the Spirit. So if you haven't found it yet, keep turning Galatians 5. And we'll begin with some prayer. Heavenly Father, we want to be conformed into the image of Your Son, and that does not happen when we strive, and it does not happen when we manufacture godliness within our own lives, but God, it can only happen through the work of Your Spirit within us. So we ask, God, that You would work through us, and that we would be washed white by the blood of Calvary's Lamb, as we just sang, God. Maybe for the first time, maybe for the thousandth time, God. We just ask that you would wash us clean. And let us behold the beauty of your Son and how he exemplifies all of these things perfectly. So be with us in this time. Amen. You may very well know from your diligent studies of Galatians over this past week that Paul was not particularly thrilled with these churches that he was writing to in Galatia. And he preaches the the truest essence of the gospel to them. That you are saved by nothing but faith. Only faith. That's what you're saved by. And I I was meeting with one of you this week. And he was sharing with me how we oftentimes will get things mixed up and how it should be. The gospel plus faith equals works. That's how it should be. And then we play this little shell game and and we mix it up and we think faith plus works, well that's the gospel. And this is what they're also doing in this church. And Paul's reminding them that they don't have to perform these works to please God. Well, well, just think about it. So if you're able to perform a certain degree of works to please God, well then who's the God? 
It's not the God of the Bible. It's yourself. We do these same things in our Christian, in our Christian little circles, don't we? Whatever pet sin that we've conquered, well then that's held up as the most egregious sin that could ever have possibly happened. You know, you're a teetotaler and you don't drink any wine, and so then anyone who does drink wine or enjoys uh, something with, with Kevin, and then, yes, they, they are held out as, as having no self-control whatsoever. Why? Well, because I've got this conquered and I'm a teetotaler. And so then that is the most egregious sin. Or if, if you, uh, God's grace, you're not looking at pornography, then this is held up as the, the worst thing that could possibly happen, which it's very close. Or whether you're, your children, whether they're able to sit down, then you see other kids running around and you go, whoa. They must have better control of their children. Or your kids are running around and you see the other ones sit down and you go, why are they quenching the spirit of their own children? And we do this in our own lives. So don't be tempted to think as we go to Galatians, a book that's 2,000 years old, that it's just some archaic letter written to churches that no longer exist, and thus it doesn't really apply to us whatsoever. So when the gospel comes... It just wipes clean the table. And we realize that it's no longer about us, but it's about Him. And it's no longer about our works, but it's about His works, the works of Christ. And it's no longer about our righteousness, whatever pet sin you might have conquered in and of your own flesh and strength. It's no longer about that, but it's about the righteousness of Christ and His right standing before God that is now going to become our right standing before God through faith and faith alone. This is the beauty of the gospel, that all of our works are in Christ. All of your works are in Christ. Everything good that you've ever done is in Christ. Now, if you're new to the faith, or even if you're not a Christian, that might sound abstract, but let me tell you something. The alternative of this being true It can lead you to suicide. Just think about it. Even if you're not a Christian, you're striving to do good. You're striving to please something, or you're striving to please someone. It's almost as though you're made in someone's image, and you're trying to please them. And as you're trying to please someone, even if the God is yourself... You're trying to please and you're trying to appease this God. But you know you can't do it. And that's why we, you don't have peace in your life. And it goes on and it goes on and it goes on and it goes on. And so the natural, natural end of all of this striving that you're never able to attain, either you check out of life, which we all know people have done that. You check out or you come to the reality that all of your life is meant to please something or someone, you can't do it. And rather than driving you to Christ, it drives you to despair. So Christian, even if you're not a Christian, I want you to see you want Christianity to be true. You want this to be true. 
you realize that all of the longings of your heart cannot be fulfilled in someone else, but only in someone else. And that is Christ. So now what do we do? Right? The true gospel has come and it's wiped clean the table of all of our works. And okay, and all of my strivings, okay, it's going to be in Christ. I get it. But then, Paul is an itinerant missionary and he moves on. And then it's like you, you leave this spiritual greenhouse of either rehab or the camp or seminary. And you leave this spiritual greenhouse. And then people start acting like people. And then the sins that you were saved from, you realize that they are still there in your life. But Paul's gone. You left camp. You're not a seminary anymore. You're out of rehab. Well, now what do you do? Your answer to this question either affirms or denies, uphold or betrays your true understanding of the gospel. Our natural inclination is just to put up more rules, more regulations. And that's what we want to do. We put up these rules to keep us from sinning. From sinning. We'll go back to the verse 19 here. You read this and you go, well, now the works of the flesh are evident. Well, this can't be good. Okay. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. And you read through this list and you go, I don't want that. Therefore, I'm going to do all that I can to not do these things. But we've already seen this played out before. Go back to the first couple of pages, right when they're in the garden. Adam tells Eve, or Adam, uh, God tells Adam, do not eat of this tree of knowledge of good and evil. There it is, right in the middle of the garden, right beside the tree of life. Do not eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. That's what Adam is told by God. And then the certain comes to Eve. And this message of not eating from the tree of knowledge of good and evil has kind of washed its way through the religious cycle. And what are Eve's words to the serpent? It's not at all, we must obey our creator and be subservient to him. No, Adam's already done the very thing that our hearts are inclined to do. Where we just put up uh, rules and regulations. And so Eve's reply to the serpent is, Oh, we can't eat of of this tree, nor can we touch it. So then what happens when we put up these rules and regulations is that our focus is no longer about obeying God, being subservient to our Creator, and adorning Him with all the glory that He deserves. Rather than that, our focus is on, well, don't touch this tree. Why? I don't know. We, we just don't do it. You see what happens then when we begin to put up these rules and regulations in our lives, even though they might be well-intentioned. Let's, let's admit it. But they don't work. They didn't work in the garden, and they don't work for us. So when the, when the desire is no longer to be subservient to your, your Creator, if it's just a, well, I'm not supposed to eat of this tree. Well, then you go, well, big deal. I can touch it. 
What's the matter? I can touch all the trees. I can touch the tree. It's not a big deal. I can touch the tree. Well, if I'm touching the tree, I can eat the thing that's on the tree because it, it should be there. It's there for me. And we do the same thing in our own lives where we go, oh, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to do it. And we put up um, um, all these rules and regulations in our lives. I'm not, I'm not going to think about this. I'm going to confess these sins. And these introduction of rules and regulations, however well-intentioned, they can never keep us from sins. And in the book of Galatians, what they are trying to do is introduce the Old Testament law to say, well, this will keep us from sinning. We don't want to do these things. So if we just keep the Old Testament law, then that will keep us from sinning. Because what you don't want to be is like this guy over here. You want to be like righteous Richie who's keeping all the laws. You don't want to be like this guy over here because he is terrible. This is the guy, not righteous Richie, but this is the guy who doesn't care about keeping the rules. This is the guy who says, yeah, I was a Christian. I can do whatever I want. That was the story of my life. You know, if Paul were to write my biography in, in Philippians, it would be the, you know, the Lutheran of Lutherans, right? A tribe of the Schultzes, a, a grandson of missionaries and linguists and ministers and teachers baptized on the eighth day. Confirmed when I was 13 in a new suit. As for zeal... None. As for righteousness under the law, I didn't care. I was baptized. Don't you realize this? I was baptized on the eighth day, so I'm good. And righteous Richie doesn't want to be like drunk Jimmy over here, who's just saying, I can do whatever I want. I was baptized. And so they have all these rules. And so we begin to think that these are two different people. The righteous Richie trying to keep all the laws to, to appease God. And drunk Jimmy, well, he's actually trying to appease God too, but his God is not the God of the Bible. His God is just himself. He's trying to please himself. And so we hold these two people in complete contrast, but what Paul is doing beautifully throughout Galatians, and especially here in this fifth chapter, is he's beginning for us to see, no, these are not two different people. This is the same narrative with the same ending. These people are working all they can to please God. So Paul is putting them in the same camp. And he's holding them in complete contrast to the son or daughter adopted by God. Who's walking in the spirit. So... Now with a sermon and a half of introduction of the fruits of the Spirit, let's jump in. Um, we'll go back to verse 19. But now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. As though we could, he's saying, I could just go on and on and on and on and on. I warn you, as I've warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit 
of the Spirit is love, joy, patience, or love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. The first thing that you notice is about the fruit of the Spirit, is how it's being held in complete contrast to the works of the flesh. Now, the works of the flesh are in pluralized, and so they're, they're varied and seemingly chaotic. How they could just go on and on in any different sense. But the fruit of the Spirit, it's singular. I hope you notice that. It's singular, as though they're all seemingly tied together, which is not surprising when you see them as a reflection of this unified God who has come in the flesh, Jesus Christ. And also, another difference is the work of the flesh is brought about by our human will, our human ability, is to be able to do the works of the flesh. However, the works of the Spirit could be only brought about by the work of the Spirit and by the will of God. So those are the differences. And what struck me the most this week studying through this, reading through this, working through this with Jake, is that these are not commandments. These are not commands. I don't know why, I never realized that before, but these are not commands. And so when we we, we approach these verses, or when we teach these verses, what we typically do is is we say, love, there it is, Um, don't you see it? Yes, yes, we all see it. Well, you should love more. And then we all kind of shake our head. Yes, yes, we should love more. We don't love enough. And and then on that high note, we move to joy. And we say, there it is, joy. Uh, don't you see it? Yes, yes, we all see it. You don't have enough joy in your life. And then we go, yes, yes, you're right. I don't have enough joy in my life. Uh, well, you should have more joy. So then the best way to create this joy is to do A, B, C, X, Y, Z. Now get out there, try harder. And when you're self-defeated, come back next week and I'll give you more rules to do. So be careful of this approach as we, attack, as we approach this text here. Because without even knowing it, we're trying to conjure up these fruit of the Spirit. We're trying to create them in a we're trying to make them a works of the flesh. Go back to verse 19 and see what you're able to pull off in and of your own flesh. It's not pretty. And so we try to put a little, a little veneer of godliness on our own desires and works of the flesh and think that we'll be fine and then we become frustrated Christians. It's kind of like this. So you're in the garden, in your backyard or wherever it might be, and you realize that you're a thistle. And you have no fruit. You're just occupying space. It's my very nature. That's who you are. And you know that you're supposed to have food, but you can't fruit. But you can't conjure it up. You can't bring it up in and up in and of yourself. So what do you do? You walk over. You grab a tomato off the vine, and then you fashion this tomato to yourself, even though you're still a thistle. And then there you go, and then you walk over and you grab the, the cucumber of, of joy, and then the, the apple of peace, and the, you know, the ear of corn of kindness, and the watermelon of gentleness, and you try to tie these off in and of yourself. And women, be warned, this is what young men typically do when they want to get married. Just a little warning. And so we adorn ourselves with these ornaments of God's grace. 
But we have no transformation in and of our own nature. And it's only a matter of time until they rot off, right? And then we walk over and try to get more and try to get more and attach it to ourselves to try to fool other people. And for us, many of us, this is our Christian life, our religious life, I should say. And unfortunately, admittedly, a lot of Christian teaching and preaching breeds this kind of thing. We tell you, well, you must do more, you must do more, you must do more. But the fruit, so what is the fruit? The fruit is the natural reflection of a transformed nature. It's the natural reflection of the transformed nature. So as we begin to kind of start working through these now, we'll get through a couple now, finish them up next week. What we're going to be doing is not asking, how can I conjure up in my, this in my own life? No, we're going to be looking to Christ, which we should be doing in the beginning. So we're going to be looking at him and say, how is this exemplified in the life of Christ? And then, what does it mean for the Spirit to work this in my own heart, in my own life? What does that look like? And we structure it in this way because the adoration must be first. All of our works must overflow from an adoration of Jesus Christ. So if we see this love and joy and all of these things in the life of Christ and begin to adore Him, that's when the Spirit will work through us. Always begin with adoration. So, love here. And that's, love is put on the, let's put on the list first for a very good reason. It, it seems as though it's, it's the, the overarching uh, achievement in truth of, all, of everything else that's in the list. So you see this in the life of Christ. He's on the Sermon on the Mount, the northern shores of the Sea of Galilee, and he's teaching them. And he's told them, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies. And pray for those who persecute you. There he is two and a half years later then, up on the cross, crying out, Lord, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Loving his enemies who are persecuting him. It's not just a command saying, guys, do this. He says that, but then he lives it out and says, be like me. You see, this is exemplified in his life. It's also in John 13, now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart the world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Well, what did he do? He rose up from supper and he laid aside his outer garments and taken a towel and tied it around his waist. And he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet. And to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. So this is how we see it exemplified in the life of Christ. So then how does the Spirit begin to work that in our own lives? The Pharisees, they approach Christ and then they say, Teacher, what is the greatest commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the greatest in the first commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all of the law and the prophets. So, friends, what does love look like in your life? 
Love in your life is greatly displayed when you pray for your enemies. When you love your enemies, you pray for those who persecute you, when you wash the feet of your brothers and sisters in Christ. This is a natural reflection of a transformed nature, of the Holy Spirit working within you. You can't naturally do this. You cannot love your enemies apart from Christ. And when you try to do it in and of yourself, you're going to become frustrated. Just pray that the Spirit would transform your heart and it will happen. So we see this love, it's not just an affection. It's not just that. And it's, love is not just an action. We've heard that more recently, that, oh, love is a verb. That's action. And I would say, yeah, they're both partially true, but you put them together and then they're completely true. This affection will naturally lead to a boundless and selfless works. And so to have the works without the affection, well, that's deceitful and likely just self-serving. But to have the affections without the works, it's just shallow. So how do we summarize this, this idea of love here that Paul is putting forth? Well, this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that He has loved us and sent His Son to be the, the payment and propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if, we, if God so loved us, we ought to, we must, we will, by the work of the Holy Spirit, love one another. We love because He first loved us. What about joy? How do we see this exemplified in the, in the life of Christ? Isn't He the man of sorrows? What a name. We sing it. Well, Christ has said that in John 15, these things I have spoken to you that my joy may be complete in you and that your joy may be made full. Luke 10, we see the hymn rejoicing, which is rejoicing is just the verb form of the noun joy, rejoice verb. At that time, we, we see him rejoicing greatly in the Holy Spirit. Or in John in 17, in his high priestly prayer, he said, But now I come to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy, my joy, the joy of Christ, made full in and of themselves. So we see this joy of Christ, but then how is it worked out in our world, and in our life? First Peter. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation, to be revealed at the at the last time. In this, in this, not in anything around you, but in this, in the finished work of Christ, you rejoice. So when you read through this list and you see love and you see joy, look to Christ. Look to how He's lived this out. Look to the work of Christ. In this you greatly rejoice. Though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. So that, 
The tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in the praise and glory and honor and revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen Him, you love Him. Though you do not see Him now, you believe in Him and rejoice with the joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. What are we rejoicing about? That He has caused us to be born again with a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So you want joy in your life? We'll just get right to it. You want joy in your life? Stop thinking about yourself. Stop thinking about yourself. And look to Christ. This is how we get past the superficial joy that's built up in what we might have or how we're doing in life. And it's bored down deep and built upon the work, the unchanging work of Jesus Christ. Then you will have true joy. So how do you summarize it? Well, just rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again. Rejoice. We got through two of them. We're going to have a seven-point sermon next week. But in closing, I just want you to see, beloved, that the fruit of the Spirit is nothing you can conjure up, is nothing you can manufacture in and of your own self or in and of your own Christian life. You cannot do it. And these Christian books, they're spilled, filled, full with ink. Telling you to do more, do more, do more. And they... They're self-help books, let's be honest. At best. What Paul is inviting us to do and what we are inviting you to do is to stop striving to, in and of your own flesh, manufacture this godliness that can only be the reflection of the Holy Spirit that is working within you. So rather than... Rather than all of this striving to make it happen in and of your own self, take time. Take time to adore Christ. A lifetime. Adore Him for all that He is. All of His glory. All of His beauty. All of His majesty. Take time to adore Christ for what He has done. That He was pierced for our transgressions. And that through Him and through this amazing grace, He has come and He has saved so many of us. And when you do this, out of this well of adoration will begin to flow this spring of true righteousness, His righteousness, that will come in and through your life. Let us pray. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we... Even though we are so well-intentioned, God, we still revert back to our own desires to achieve things through our own flesh, through our own workings. God, we ask that your Spirit would work so mightily in us that we would know it is only the reflection. Anything good that we do can only be the reflection of what you have worked through us, God. So as we come to the table and feast on your son, God, we I ask and we beg, God, that we would be able to adore him in a way that we never have. And then in all of our love and our joy, that we would look to Christ and have his love and his joy in our lives. Amen.
Amen.